Well, I invite you to turn in your Bible to Colossians chapter 3. We're continuing on with this chapter, continuing on looking at um, Paul, well, God, through the Apostle Paul, summoning you to fight against and to kill, to put to death, to put away your sin. And yet he does this, the Apostle Paul does, not simply by giving a list of things that you ought not to do. He does give us a list of some of those things. But he does this by also continually coming back to the basis or to the grounds of this battle. By reminding the Colossians, by reminding you as believers of who you are in Christ and of what it is that he has done for you. So we're going to read uh, verses, starting in verse 5, we'll read through to verse 11. So Paul writes, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian Scythian, slave, free. But Christ is all and in all. So if you remember, now we read beginning in verse 5, but if you remember even back to the beginning of the chapter in verse 1, uh, from verses 1 to 4, Paul has given a general explanation of how this battle against sin works. Uh, then in verses 5 to 11, he gives some specifics of sins that we are to fight against, we are to battle. Uh, Last time we looked at verses 5 to 7, and today we're going to look at verses 8 through 11. Now this section, 5 to 11, uh, it's it's divided up, it's often divided up um, by, in three sections, looking at the three different commands or three different imperatives. So you see the first one we looked at last time is in verse 5. He says, put to death... Therefore, what is earthly in you? And then he lists some of the five of those five things to put to death. And then he gives a couple of motivations, a couple of reasons on account of these things. The wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these things in verse 7. Then verse 8, you have the second command or imperative. But now you must put them all away. And then he's going to list more things. And then in verse 9, we have the third imperative, which is do not lie to one another. And then he's going to... Um, again, return to some motivations, some basis for this. And so this is what we're looking at, these second two uh, imperatives uh, in our time today. So again, as we continue to look at this, the summons to battle sin, to fight your sin, again, we see every, this is for every believer, every believer is called to do this, to battle sin, There are imperatives, obviously, given here. We're called to action. But again, throughout this, we see Paul continually return 
to refer to this grounds of this battle, this, this who you are in Christ, what God has done for you in Christ Jesus, if indeed you believe in him, and to, to battle as those who are forgiven, as those who are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And this, again, we've, we've been talking about how this, is, this makes all the difference in the world when we face these, when we hear these commands. They are not simply oppressive beatdowns of things that you must do, you must do all these things, these just heavy, weighty commands. They are commands, but they're rooted in all that you have and all that you are already in Christ Jesus. And this continues to be brought forth by Paul in this section. So again, we're going to look at the second and third commands that we find in this section by looking at verses 8 to 11. So let's begin with the second command, which is found in verse 8. So after acknowledging in verse 7 that walking in sin is part of the former way of life for the Colossians, Paul returns to another command. He says, but now you must put them all away. But now you must put them all away. So in contrast to that former way of life, now, he says, is the time to put these things away. You no longer walk in these ways. That was, that was part of the former way, but now you put these away. Uh, the words put away, they carry a slightly different picture than we looked at last week where we were told to put to death these sins. Putting away could be translated as putting off or casting aside or laying aside. It's the picture really of casting off a garment, taking off clothing and throwing it aside. That's, that's the, the, the picture that's now given in this language. The wording here gets, I think, just a little bit awkward in the way the ESV has it written. Uh, it says, but now you must put them all away, which seems to refer to the list of sins he's already mentioned that we looked at last time in verses 5 through 7. These sins that you used to walk in them, he says, now you must put them all away. But then he goes on to introduce a new list of five vices. And the, the wording, I don't know if, if it seems awkward to you, but when I look at it, it just seems a little odd. But I do think the better rendering is, and some other English versions, um, I think, helpfully render it this way. A better rendering is, but now you must also put away all such sins as, and then he has another list here of five things. So I think, I think this matters, this wording matters. He's saying you must put away all sins, all such sins, all sins like the ones I'm about to mention, which is a reminder that there's many other types of sins that, could, that he could list out here, right? Paul is not being comprehensive in his list of sins. He's listing a number of things that we ought to put away, but there's much more as well. So I think it's important, obviously, just to remember that. Uh, even as we look at some of these specifics today that he does give us. So, we looked last time at five vices that Paul had said to put to death, and now he gives us five more vices. This time he says to put away or to put off, to take off. And they're given there. They're anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. So anger and wrath, these first two, they're near, near synonyms. Uh, one commentator writes that if they had to be distinguished, the first word might denote a chronic anger, while the second, 
a passionate outburst of anger. So we have anger and wrath, kind of a settled disposition and then the outbursts of it. Of course, we might think of the fact that God, just in the previous verse, we were told, or sorry, in verse 6, we were told that God has wrath, right? There's the wrath of God that is coming. It is a wrath that will be poured out upon unrepentant believers in the last day. So we might wonder, well, wrath is, is not right, or it is right, or how does God have it? Well, obviously, God's wrath is not a passionate outburst that's just kind of flying off the cuff, rooted in fleshly sinfulness. This is not the case for God. God's wrath is a settled and holy disposition, a disposition that is toward sinners on account of their sin. It is a necessary and settled matter because of his intrinsic righteousness and holiness, along with God's role as cosmic judge of all things and of all people. So even if we think about the attributes of God, um, his wrath is not a sin, the same kind of attribute as we might say with his love. Okay, God is love. That is intrinsic to who God is. Were there nobody else around, the triune God is a God of love. His wrath is, in a sense, an attribute of him, but it, is, it flows from the fact that he is holy and righteous, and it's necessary because of the presence of sin. Therefore, he must be angry at sin. So it flows out of his righteousness, and so it's a slightly different uh, type, you might say, of attribute. God has a wrath that is a holy and settled wrath. It's not some passion that just comes and goes on a whim. It's rooted in his holiness. If you think of wrath and anger, or anger, uh, even amongst men it is possible though I would suggest probably rare, but it's possible to have anger that is not actually sin. If you caught it when we read from Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 26, there it says to be angry and do not sin. Of course, we might also think of the Lord Jesus, the perfect man who was angry and overturned tables even in his righteous indignation. The anger spoken of here is clearly not of the righteous sort that Paul has in mind. And in fact, most often, this is the way the Bible speaks of anger amongst men. That is, it speaks of it as a sin. It is that which does not produce the righteousness of God in us. This anger referred to here is an intense displeasure. The anger, wrath of man, it is usually rooted in selfishness and arrogance, Self-centeredness, pride, anger and wrath as given here would be, I think, what we would probably rightly refer to as emotions, a disposition, an attitude, a feeling, which would certainly give rise to, to, to acts of anger, outbursts of anger, give rise to sin. And of course, outbursts of anger, you know, we just kind of, it rises up and we're furious would also evidence a lack of self-control. And of course, you know from Galatians 5 that self-control is one of the fruits of the Spirit. Anger outbursts most typically and often 
is giving unrestrained vent to passions of the flesh. So we have anger, we have wrath, and Paul then mentions here malice, malice, which certainly would be related to anger and wrathfulness. Uh, The word malice refers to a mean-spirited or vicious attitude or disposition towards somebody. Malice is evil, and it desires the harm of another person, harm of various sorts. And so I would just, I would encourage you as you read this, uh, before assuming even that your desire for judgment upon maybe the ungodly, before just assuming that that is a righteous attitude, to just consider if it's not simply an avenue for fleshly malice, desiring just fleshly harm to come to somebody. If you recall from Luke 9 and verse 54, James and John there asked the Lord if they could call down fire from heaven to consume the Samaritans who had rejected the Lord Jesus. Indeed, the Samaritans had done a great evil in the way they treated the Lord Jesus. And that's no small thing for them to do. And they ask if they should call down fire and see these people burned up. And yet, Jesus rebuked James and John. Of course, Jesus came to save. He came to seek and to save the lost. That is why he came. And so it's so crucial and important to remember that, yes, judgment will come one day. And we should warn and rebuke unbelievers that the wrath of God is coming. Paul has already said that here. That is good, that is right, that is loving to do. And it is also good and right and important for you to take solace in the fact that God will come, that Christ will return and bring about and establish eternal justice. And yet our message is ultimately now repentance. Repentance and salvation, repentance unto life. It is a message that there is yet time, there is yet opportunity to repent and to, to trust the Lord Jesus Christ and to be saved from this wrath that is to come. We are not to be those who just get giddy in excitement about the thought of others getting their due in what's coming. John Calvin, in commenting on that passage in Luke 9, 54, warns, he says, quote, Those who appear to be the keenest zealots for the glory of God are frequently blinded by the private feelings of the flesh. What he's saying there is we might seem, see someone who seems to be very zealous and desiring judgment to fall on some, and, and yet his experience and his note there is that sometimes, often, they are blinded by private feelings of the flesh. These are days right now that we live in that are evil and particularly, I think, frustrating for many, for many of you. I know this to be the case. And so I would just encourage you to be on guard against fleshly malice. Fleshly malice as you consider the way the world is going, policies being enacted, various sorts of persecution, various sorts of 
craziness that goes on, is taught in schools, and so on. It's easy to just give way to desires for everyone to just be destroyed. And so, be on guard against malice, even against your enemies. And yet, I don't think Paul simply has in mind here enemies. As this list progresses, and especially as we get into the next commandment to not lie, the focus very clearly moves toward life in the church. Primarily, Paul's addressing the church corporately here. So again, as we, again, as we get into the next uh, command, he's going to say, do not lie to one another. Right? Who are the one another's? They're, they're the church. He's saying this to the Colossians, to each other, your brothers and sisters. So I think, again, primarily he has church life in mind as he gives this list. And again, that's going to be, I think, even more clear as we get into verse 12 and following with the stuff that we're called to put on. He's got church life and church interaction as individuals in view. You might think it's strange to think that anger and wrath and malice and these things would be listed as a a temptation, as a threat for Christians. Christians wouldn't do that with one another. They wouldn't feel that way or act that way toward one another, and yet here he is giving this. Just because someone becomes a Christian, even, I'm saying genuinely so, a genuine born-again believer, it does not mean that all malice is automatically gone and all indignation all of a sudden just becomes holy indignation. Do not think that is true of you. And put away that any, any remnants of vindictive, angry, you know, desire to see another ruined because they did X. You know, Paul's telling us here it's something to be put off, something to be put to death. Next on this list is slander. Slander, it's the word for blasphemy. Uh, when it's aimed at God, that's how it's translated as blasphemy. Uh, but when this is aimed at other people, it is typically translated as slander. And it seems quite likely that that's the usage Paul has in mind here, human-to-human interactions with each other. And so I think slander is, is right. Of course, obviously, don't blaspheme either. But I think slander is what he has in mind here amongst one another. The Greek word here used refers to speech that denigrates or defames another and could be translated as reviling, denigration, disrespect, or slander as we have it. It involves making claims about someone that is either outright untrue or twisting true events so as to paint a bad picture of someone and bring damage to their reputation in someone's eyes. The slanderer often believes himself to be in the right and speaking objectively and just simply of what is true. But it is a form of malice, and it is the opposite of considering others more significant than yourself. It is the opposite of loving and seeking the good of one's neighbor. neighbor. It is ultimately self-serving and wicked. It is dishonestly speaking about others, such that it brings them low. And I think it's worth just, again, being careful here. We, we, we tend to just assume, because I 
think something a certain way that it's automatically true and I, I am the one here with the perfectly objective view. I think just you might be right, but just be careful. And again, this, this also gets at attitude and, and purpose and what we're saying. If we're trying to bring somebody low. But of course it can happen. We can slander someone if we don't even intentionally do it just by spreading something that's not true about them or twisting something. So this, this should bring about carefulness in us as we talk to, an, about, to one another or about another person. Slander is not right at any time, most certainly within the church. If there is an issue or a concern, an offense committed in the body, you are instructed in Scripture to go to that person, to go to that brother or sister and explain, to go to them, knowing also what the Scripture says about your own heart and the log in your own eye, and dealing with that, and then turning and, and hopefully uh, as humbly as possible, going to that person to address their sin. And so you can go to that person, you should go to that person, assuming the best, going, as we'll see in future verses here, with much patience, bearing with one another, uh, with the goal of getting it cleared up and forgiveness if there's sin involved, the goal of godliness in every individual involved, the goal of a restored relationship to the Lord and getting things right with the Lord between that person and God and between you and that person and anyone else involved. This is the opposite of slander, right? Of just saying things to bring somebody down. Loose lips. The fifth vice here listed is obscene talk from your mouth. Or to put away obscene talk from your mouth. This is immoral, offensive, sexually explicit, derogatory, scurrilous types of speech. I think this is, this is a very common type of speech. Um, maybe, particularly for guys, for men, I, I wouldn't limit it simply to men. Um, but this, this might pass as locker room talk today. In a parallel that we read earlier, Ephesians 4.29, Paul writes, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. This, this is what we're to put on. This is how we are to talk. Not in calloused obscenity or in loose or coarse joking. And so we, we can see in this list, the Lord is concerned with your heart, right? Anger, wrath. He's concerned with your tongue, malice, slander, obscene talk. He's concerned about these matters as you live out your days and interact with your neighbors and with your brothers and sisters within the church. So again, I would just encourage you, examine yourself for these things, specifically these things listed as they're raised here, and where you find you fall short, then, of course, confess this to the Lord, repent of this, rest in the righteousness of Christ, and then continue to seek to lay off all such sins. So that, that's the second command, to put these, these five things off. And then we get to the third command in verse 9, the third imperative in this section. 
Paul writes here. He says, do not lie to one another. Again, this is where I think it's explicit that he's talking about church life. We shouldn't lie ever, but he's dealing with the church. So he says, do not lie to one another. And I think this is one where we could just read this and be like, yep, I got it. We learned that when we were little. I trust all the kids here have heard this. You don't lie. Got it. Next. What's next? But as with all of God's commands, there's a temptation to restrict this to one particular type of infraction, usually an external one, so that then we can feel good about having kept this command. So with lying, we say, we think of it purely as an intentional and direct statement of something that is false. Right? So someone asks you, did you do X? The truth is no, but you say yes. You know, we all agree that is a clear-cut lie. That's a direct statement of untruth. It's an intentionally false statement. But I do believe, even with this command, as with the others, it is right to look past even just the, that kind of external, technical definition and see what God calls believers to is, is, is really truthfulness and sincerity with one another. That's, I think, underneath this. Just as the command to not commit adultery, uh, Jesus makes it very clear that, that, he, that, that also is aimed at our hearts. We're not to commit it in our hearts either. And suddenly that takes it from you know, a specific you know, technical definition of it to suddenly opens the doors to everybody being guilty. So too with lying. Again, John Calvin says of this text that Paul here, quote, condemns every sort of cunning and all base artifices of deception. For I do not understand that the term, do not lie, as refer- I do not understand the term, do not lie, as referring merely to calumnies, that is, making false damaging statements, but I view it as contrasted in a general way with sincerity. That God's calling you to sincerity, to truthfulness in general. You see, you and I can fudge answers. And we can avoid certain matters so as to deceive one another. We can project something about ourselves that is, in fact, false to one another. We can answer one another in ways that avoid the truth without breaching what we have in our minds as a technical definition of a lie. But Christians are those who walk in the light. This is what God calls us to. And he calls you to sincerity and to truthfulness in your dealings. There is, there is a temptation to hypocrisy. I trust you feel it. I do, and I'm certain... You do, I'm certain you do as well. But there is a temptation to hypocrisy for Christians to project something about yourself that's not true. We, we, you know, and I think it's going to rise out of a good motive. You, you and I, we want to be mature and we want to be able to help. And, and there's sometimes this part of us that wants to then 
project that, and we could end up deceiving people if we're trying to hold on to some sort of reputation or image that's just not there. To withhold being truthful with a brother or sister about where you struggle because you don't want to look bad. You want to be thought of as being further along in your pursuit of holiness than you are. It's something to be aware of, to be on guard about. Of course, not every single matter is every person's business. There are discretionary matters. Uh, You don't need to go tell every single member of the church every single thing about you. That's not what this is. The point is you're called to honesty, to put off all forms of lying, deceiving, and duplicity. And so the the commands in this section have come to an end here in verse 9. And Paul now returns again to speaking of the grounds for the commands, the basis of them, why you're to do them, why you can do them, and why they're appropriate. Verse 9, do not lie to one another, seeing that, or because, or since, you have put off the old self, or old man, with its practices, that is, its evil deeds, and you have put on the new self, or the new man. So he's saying, to fight your sin, to put it off, because you have been regenerated. You have been made new, you have been born again, and so once more he's saying, We're striving to live consistently with this, with who you now are in Christ. That's what this saying is. Your old self has been crucified, has died, buried with Christ, and you have put on a new self with a new nature. You've been raised with Christ. So again, this is what Paul has been saying over and over again. If you go back to chapter 2 and verse 11... This is kind of where he began to deal with it. In him, it says, you are also, talking about Christ, in, in Christ also you are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And again in chapter 3, verse 1, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated. Uh, Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. This is the same thing that Paul keeps coming back to. You're pursuing godliness because you have been made new, because of who you are in Christ So again, we must be clear that a Christian is not merely someone who just goes to church. It's not merely someone who just simply identifies as a Christian. It's not even just somebody who desires a a better or moral life or whatever. A Christian is one who has been made new within, who has undergone an actual and real change, a conversion, whereby that person, that individual, is spiritually Reborn and is now a new creature with new desires that includes 
actually desiring the things of God and actually desiring the glory of God's name. And this happens to a person as a sovereign work of the Holy Spirit in a sinner who repents of their sin and trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of that sin. This is received by faith, by believing in Christ. And Paul continually says, live now in light of this reality. The old man has been put off, so continue to put off that which lingers in your sinful nature. Now notice what he goes on to say here. As he says, seeing that you have, been, have, have put off the old man with its practices and have put on the new self, you've been made new. But what about this new self? He says, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. There is a tendency to think that because you've been made new, this new self ought to be instantly perfect. Well, it says I've been made new. I should just get this. I should just be better than this. I should just be righteous. Should I not? I've been made new. The old man's been crucified. This is not how God saves. This is not how God works. The new self, he says, is being renewed. It is a prog- there is a progressive conformity to the divine image. So in your standing before God, believer, you are justified on account of Christ's righteousness. It is done. But in your person, you are new, you are truly and actually a new creation, but you are not yet perfect. You are being renewed, formed, molded into the likeness of Christ. This is that progressive sanctification. Notice again the the emphasis here on knowledge. Uh, We've seen this throughout Colossians, particularly back in chapter 1 in a number of places. He says you're, you're renewed in knowledge. That the new self is being renewed in knowledge. This knowledge is a spirit-granted illumination of the Word of God that is forming you into the image of your new self's creator. That is Christ. This comes through knowledge. Again, if you think back to chapter 1, it's why Paul was praying and concerned that they would grow in their knowledge and understanding. Because he wants them to be conformed further to the image of Christ. In in chapter 1, verse 15, Jesus there is said to be the image of the invisible God and the one through whom all things were created. Also, in chapter 2, verse 11, as we just read, regeneration The circumcision is said to be of Christ. It's the circumcision of Christ, which means that the new self's creator, I think that's a reference to Christ. He is the one who recreates you by the Spirit of God. Of course, the triune God works together and works in unity all the time. 
But I think what this is saying is you are being formed into the image of Christ, who is himself the perfect image of God. Galatians 4.19, Paul speaks of Christ being formed in you. He tells you in Romans that those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. We're being made into the image of God, which is the image of Christ. Those are the same thing. And I think this, there's, there's much discussion about the image of God and what it means to be made into the image of God. And I think this context here of, of this statement of being renewed in the knowledge of the, the image of, of its creator indicates that the primary meaning of being created in the image of God is moral. It's primarily a matter of true knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. I think there is perhaps a little more to it, but that's, I think, the primary matter. And this is what is being restored in believers. So once again, as you labor to put off anger, wrath, malice, lies, etc., remember that what God has done for your soul in redeeming you and in making you new. Remember that he has committed to your sanctification, to renew you. And so seek him through his word, where you find the knowledge that renews. Uh, Don't lose heart in this as you find sin yet again in yourself. Confess it again and, and, and remember how great Christ is in his righteousness. A second grounds or basis of putting off sin, especially as it's related to church life to one another, is given here in verse 11, where it says here, that is, in the church, right, amongst those bought with the blood of Christ, amongst your brothers and sisters, amongst those who are being renewed into the image of Christ, here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, Barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. But Christ is all and in all. This verse now speaks to the profound unity that exists for those who are in Christ. These other distinctions, they don't just disappear or go away, but ultimately they do not really matter. It's true, they don't cease to exist altogether or go away, but they do not make up your identity, ultimately, of who you are. Ultimately, you are a new creation in Christ Jesus. That's who you are, and as you look to your brothers and sisters, that's who they are primarily. Be they male or female, slave or free, wherever they happen to be from, whatever color their skin is, and so on. Our primary identity is Christian. These external, other external realities and differences are not to be the church's continual and ongoing obsession, even if our culture wants it to be that way.
And even if other Christians out there on various popular websites won't stop talking about these differences. The reason for this is that Christ is all. Meaning, Christ is everything that each person in the church needs. He's all that truly matters to each person. At the end of the day, it's as we often sing it, hallelujah, all I have is Christ. Jesus is my life. This is our refrain we sing together, and it's true. It doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter what you look like. It doesn't. It just doesn't. And because of this, we're all equals in Christ. We come to him in the same way, repentance and faith. It doesn't matter what your former life was. You looked pretty good. You were really more of a self-righteous type person, didn't really run off like the uh, prodigal son, or if you were the prodigal son. It doesn't matter. In Christ, we're one. It's the basis of our unity. We come to him in the same way. We're saved by the same act, Christ's substitutionary, atoning death and resurrection. And we are all brought into the one body of Christ. And moreover, Christ is all, and he is in all believers. Again, this is what objectively unifies us. He's all to all of us, and he's in us. This supersedes external factors. Again, former religious practices, ethnicity, socioeconomic status, slave or free, wealthy or poor, business owner or common laborer. And he's going to go on and he's going to address husbands and wives This doesn't mean that there aren't still some distinctions that matter in one sense. He's not totally obliterating all distinction between males and females or Jews and Gentiles. He's going to address masters and slaves even. We still function as individuals. We do have certain stuff that is unique to us and jobs and so on and we live out our Christian lives in those contexts as the individuals we are with certain gifts and certain responsibilities as a male or a female. This is not obliterated here. It's not what he's saying. But he is saying that all of these things ultimately are of no help in the matter of salvation. At the foot of the cross, we stand as sinners in need of redemption. And so as believers in Christ, we are first and foremost, our identity is new creation in Christ. We are above all brothers and sisters. Before him, you and I stand helpless and empty-handed, and yet in him now, you and I, no matter who you are, where you're from, are also kings and queens, so to speak. You are all free men and women in the Lord, regardless of any job you might be enslaved to. And you are all slaves of Christ, no matter how free you might be of other jobs, debts, or obligations to other men or women. 
Whatever your former identity was prior to Christ, your new identity is first and foremost Christ's. He is all and in all. And this wonderful reality is not simply uh, here that we might feel good about it. I hope you do. I hope that does make you feel good um, to, to know that Christ is all and that he's sufficient for you and for the person sitting next to you and so on. But this is a reminder, too, of why it is that anger, wrath, malice, slander, and lies to one another have no place. Because around you sits precious brothers and sisters for whom Christ shed his blood. So would you slander such a person now? Or lie to such a person? You you see... Your brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus. Around you sit those in whom the Lord dwells by his spirit. Your fellow members in the body are co-heirs of glory with you. And in his church, Christ is ultimate. He is ultimately all we have. He is ultimately what matters. It is him that we worship. It is him that we point one another to. He is the one with the name that is above all names. He is the one with the only name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And so make much of his name. Seek to honor him in your interactions with one another. It will not be perfect, we know that. This is why we will labor to be, as we will go on, it's hard to stop, but being patient with one another, loving one another, forgiving one another. But for now, labor to put off that which would tear down your brothers and sisters, along with all such sins, wherever you might find them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, There's not a person here who's not exposed by your law. There's not not a person here. When your word penetrates the heart and addresses the heart, and when we understand that sin is, is not just external things that we might do now and then, but there's sin in the heart that yet remains, uh, we, we're guilty before you again. And so, Father, I pray that we would see the beauty of, verses 10 and 11, that we would rejoice in the fact that Christ is all and in all. Father, I pray that this would increase our love for one another and our patience with each other as we remember that ultimately we stand as equals before the cross and in Christ Jesus, that we would view one another as blood-bought, new creatures, ones for whom you, Father, sent your Son. Father, I pray that this would work humility in us, that we would 
be slow to exalt ourselves, that we would very willingly and joyfully bear with one another, knowing the depths of our sins that you have forgiven. Father, I thank you so much. I praise you for where this occurs every day amongst your people here. Father, I pray that you would just encourage everyone to, to just do this all the more. May we know the goodness of bearing with others. Father, change our hearts as needed. Renew us. Father, conform us into the image of your Son. Form him in us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.